like you to open your Bible at Isaiah chapter 32. Read with me if you would. Isaiah chapter 32. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, the ears of those who hear will listen, the mind of the rash will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For the fool speaks folly, his mind is busy with evil, he practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. The passage is really talking about what happens when things are right at the top. When the king is king, when a king reigns in righteousness, and this is supposed to be a messianic passage, which means it looks forward to the time when Jesus the king, or the king that God will send, the Messiah, will reign and rule. And when he reigns and rules, then everything will get put into place. He will choose the right rulers under him, who will choose the right rulers under him, etc., etc. And there'll be a trickle-down righteousness bit. That's what happens when the right king is on the throne. And in this specific instance, Hezekiah had just come to the throne. And Isaiah the prophet is pointing this out to the people. See, when a king reigns in righteousness, what happens? He gets rid of the bad people and all the corruption and gets a new police force in place and gets the thing cleaned up. And then everybody begins to settle down, even down to the ordinary people. No longer will the fool be called noble and the scoundrel be called somebody wonderful. Right won't be called wrong anymore. There will be no oppression. The courts will get cleaned up. Everything in society will get put into place. And this points forward to the kingdom to come, of course, when Jesus Christ reigns, when everything will be in place. Now, the kingdom to come in the future, whenever that is for us, maybe we'll still be alive, maybe we won't, when Christ comes back again, establishes his kingdom, that's one thing. But there is another kingdom. When you think of the kingdom of God, you think of many things. There is a kingdom within our heart. There is an internal kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of God is not only the kingdom that will come when I come back in the clouds and all the rest, but the kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God can be many things. And the kingdom of God within us has a central place where there is a throne. And somebody's sitting on that throne. In every single person's life, all those of you that are listening to me, there is somebody on the throne of your life, somebody in charge, somebody in charge. When the king, when King Jesus is in charge, then everything in the kingdom of your life will fall into place. Things will get ordered. It doesn't mean everything will go right. Everything wasn't going right in Hezekiah's kingdom. But it does mean there will be a sense of order, of coming together, of all things working together, of things, bits being put into the right place, of pieces of the puzzle fitting. And you'll be together inside, even if your world is falling apart outside. The kingdom of your life, ruled by King Jesus, who gives the orders that you obey, is a life that is lived in righteousness, in rightness, and things get into line. And people around you will feel the effect of that. So the first question is, who is in charge? Are we playing God? Are we playing God? Now, I remember when I was raising my teenagers, and it's a long, long time ago now because I'm very old. 
But I remember when my kids were teenagers that I played God. I couldn't stop it and I couldn't help it. Now, what does it mean to play God in the lives of your children, for example? Well, what is God? God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. That's what it means. Have to be everywhere they are. I remember Judy going out on her first date. And I was there at the door, and I said, take me with you. <laughs> and she said, oh, mother, you know, what it's like in those days. Oh, mother, embarrassing. That was her word. All I heard from Judy in her teenage years was embarrassing. Embarrassing. That's what her mother did to her. But I was trying to be omnipresent. I was trying to be God. And I couldn't. I remember living in Isaiah. It's a wonderful book for mothers. I commend it to you, in those days, and coming across a verse which I've gone back to many times, as birds hover over Jerusalem, so will I hover over you, my children, or something like that, and I put in my margin of my Bible, if God will do it for a city, so he will do it for my child, and it was just the wonderful picture of the hovering of God, the brooding of God, the word is brooding, the Spirit of God brooded over the waters, and the same word is used in that passage of Scripture in Isaiah, that the Spirit of God broods over my children, and when I cannot be there, he is. When I cannot be there, he is. When I cannot hover, I used to hover. In fact, my children still accuse me of hovering. Don't hover, mother. And when you can't hover, he does. The presence of God. God is omnipresent. You can't play God. What about omniscient? You want to know everything. Who's on the phone? Who was that? <laughs> share with mother. <laughs> no, I don't want to share with mother. I want you to know who's on the phone. My friend. I don't know if you'll want to know who's on the phone. And how tempting it is to go in pretending to dust. And... <laughs> <laughs> I want to know everything. A letter comes and children aren't in from school yet. And... Very tempting. Hold it over the kettle and steam it open. These are things that happen to all mothers. Wanting to play God. Know everything. Be everywhere. Omnipotent. Control. See, the problem with parenting is you're going to lose control. You're going to lose control. And none of us handle that. None of us handle it well. Some of us handle it better than others. It's, it's a very hard thing to give up the need to be needed because you sense that as losing control. You can't manipulate anymore. You can't make them do anything anymore. I remember Pete growing to my height, and I had a hot dish in my hand and turned around from the stove and said, move, Pete, move. He was standing right here. He was, move, move. And he didn't. And I looked up straight into his eyes, and he had this grin on his face. And he said, make me. <laughs> and apparently he had come to this momentous point in his life <laughs> where he realized he was as tall as his mother and I couldn't make him. And I remember standing there aghast with this hot dish between us, looking at him, think, this, this horrible sinking feeling in my stomach. I remember David coming home at six years of age from an English school, saying, Mommy, how is the world made? Well, God made the world. 
Well, my teacher said that it was made through evolution and all of this and the Big Bang. And, and I was in the sink, and I just simply said, well, David, that's, that's not true. God made the world. And there was, I just went on. And then I realized he hadn't responded. He was sitting at the table, six years of age. And I turned around and I said, David, listen to me. God made the world. You believe mommy, don't you? And he didn't answer. And I had this horrible sinking feeling. I can't make him believe. I can't play God. But when the king is king in my life, I have to constantly remind myself it's his job to be sovereign, it's my job to be loyal and get on with what he wants me to get on with doing, to be the mother, to say the things I should do and all the rest of it and let him work his work in my child's life. You're giving control to God, you're not giving it up. Paul trusting very hard to do. But when the king is king, that part of your kingdom will be in place. You'll be able to refer it to the throne. It's all a matter of who's in control. Who is king in your life? Is it King Jesus or is it King me? We can call him king, but I'd ask you a question. Is it true? Is it true? Do you ever, do you ever listen to yourself when you're singing? And ask yourself, I'm singing happily, my God reigns, but Jesus is very firmly not the king of my life at this point. I am. I'm the one calling the shots. In England, we have a weird system with the monarchy. I remember watching Princess Elizabeth come home from Africa where she had heard about her father, George V's death, to become Queen of England. And I remember as a, a teenager watching that coronation. And there was a lot of commentary went on as the crown was put on her head and everybody, all the most important people in the land came and knelt in front of her and said, my lord and my liege, which is what they say, offered their sovereign, Queen Elizabeth, their allegiance. Now from that point to this day, Queen Elizabeth of England has never issued an order, has never signed a decree. Prime Minister does that. She is titular head, it's called. She is a symbol. She is apart from government. And that's what I say many Christians' lives. We kneel before him and say, my Lord and my liege. And he's never signed an order and he's never been the prime minister. I'm the prime minister, the first minister, running the country for him. <laughs> and it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. But when the king is king, when the king reigns, when we are seeking to live our lives in obedience to God, moment by moment and day by day in our lives, in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, then the kingdom of our lives begins to get in order. When he is Lord, he is Lord, he is Lord, we sing it. Next time you sing anything like that with King or Lord in, ask yourself this question. Who is king? Is it King Jesus or is it King me? Is the government on his shoulders or is the government on mine? Now then, when the king is king, the influence begins to happen. And I want to look at three pictures in this passage of scripture today. When the king is king, we quit playing God and playing games. We will become like a windbreak, a shelter from the wind, like a watershed, like streams of water in the desert, and a wall, the shadow of a great walk within 
a weary land. Now, as you know me now, those of you that do, you know that I work in pictures. I love pictures. And of course, the Bible is full of pictures. They fall out every time you open the page. And to me, as I looked at these three pictures, they gave me a wonderful application of this passage. They gave me an opportunity to ask myself a question. If the king is truly ruling and reigning in my life, then my life will be like these pictures. I will be like a windbreak. I will be like a watershed. I will be like a wall. And everybody in the sphere of my influence, they say there's 200 people in the sphere of everybody's influence, give or take, that are really in the sphere of my influence, will know that about me. And I want to ask you a very strong question. When people look at your life, are you like a windbreak? Are you like a watershed? Are you like a wall? Now let's look at the windbreak. Now obviously, Jesus is our windbreak. He is our windbreak. In John chapter 10, you remember, Jesus gave some teaching on the fact that he was the good shepherd. Now, the good shepherd does many things for the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep, Jesus said in that passage. And he was talking to people that knew very well that that was a fact sometimes in the fierce wild animal country where shepherds operated in the hills around Jerusalem and all over Judea. The lions and the bears could come upon the lone shepherd. Uh, David said he fought with lions and overcame them. When he was a shepherd boy, with his own hands, he killed and fought the lion. Why? why? What was the lion doing? The lion was coming to get the sheep. And so the shepherd in those days would lie across the door. There wasn't a door to the sheepfold. He would gather the sheep in at night into the sheepfolds that were scattered across those mountains. You can still see them there today. And then when the sheep were tended, he would stretch himself to sleep, to guard the sheep across the door. So when the lion came, the lion had to get the shepherd before the lion could get the sheep. Now Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I came down to earth and I lay across the door. I am the door of the sheepfold, he says in that passage. I am the door. And the thing about Jesus is the lion got him. And on Good Friday, the lion got the shepherd. But if you read Psalm 22, which comes between the very famous, before the wonderful Psalm 23, you will discover something. It, it starts on a low key, the psalm, and finishes off on a high key. And in the middle, it talks about lions gaping their mouths open, ready for the prey. And people believe that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It points forward to Jesus on the cross. Read it sometimes. And the lions gaping, people opening their mouths, ready to tear him to pieces, are a picture of what the devil was inciting people to do. And of course, behind what people did was that lion, the devil, roaring around, waiting to devour the Lord's Christ. This psalm ends on this incredible note of triumph. He has done it. Talks about everybody coming to the feet of the one who was crucified and torn to bits by the lion on the cross and how he will be exalted and it ends up everybody will come and lay down 
things at his feet, and he has done it. And the words, he has done it, is the equivalent to tetelestai, finished. The words Jesus borrowed on the cross were from Psalm 22, the end verse. Finished. Done. So the lion got him on Good Friday morning, but on Easter Sunday morning, he got the lion. He got the lion. Jesus is our windbreak. What happened on the cross as our good shepherd suffered there? Well, what happened was God poured out his wrath against sin. God doesn't like sin. He is angry at sin. He is wrathful about sin. He said sin must be punished. And so his son came to become the punishment. So on the cross, God's wrath was poured out from heaven and Jesus took it. He was the windbreak. You know what a windbreak is? You, you wear a windbreaker, it stops the wind, the wrath of the wind of the storm getting to you. And on the cross, Jesus became our windbreak. He stopped the wrath of God falling on us. He became the windbreak. Now, because he was my windbreak, and I acknowledge that, and he has become my savior, and my lord, and my king, and he reigns in my life, I am now to become a shelter from the wind for other people, not in the sense of redemption, of course, but in another sense. How can we become a windbreak? How can we become a windbreak for other people? I could illustrate this in many ways, but I think I want to illustrate it through prayer. One way we can stop what Satan is trying to do in other people's lives is to become a windbreak in the matter of prayer. Every time you pray for someone else, you are being a windbreak. You are stopping the blast against that person in the name of Jesus. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. I remember reading a missionary book hundreds of years ago with a story I have never forgotten it was the story of a missionary out in some wild country. I think it was Nepal. And every time he had to travel, it was difficult. And he would take money from one little group of believers to another in his clothing. But like the biblical story, he fell among thieves many times. It was very dangerous to carry anything of worth in that wild, uncivilized country. But back home in England, in Somerset actually, there were four ladies and they were part of a missionary movement that prayed for missionaries. I don't know what happened to it. I don't think we do it anymore. But it was a home movement where missionaries were prayed for by, by groups of people. And this particular missionary had been sent out by missionary society, and these four ladies had committed themselves once a week to gather in this little tiny cottage in England and pray for this man. And so they had been doing this through his history. And he sent them a message home. And of course, in those days, there wasn't any email. It took about two months to get anything out and another month to arrive in England. And he said, pray for me because I'm having to travel from little group of believers to little group of believers and I'm having to take goods and money to help these people. And it is getting worse and worse. It's getting so dangerous. And he said, soldiers sometimes come with me, but I can't get them to do it all the time and then I'm on my own. So... Every week, the little ladies would pray for his safety. And one particular day, he was coming to, with quite a large amount of money into a little bigger town, and some thieves waited to attack him and to take the money. And they saw him, and then one of them said, oh, 
Wouldn't you know it, he managed to get the soldiers with him today and so they didn't do it. And he arrived in the town and the believers there were absolutely amazed. They said, we heard rumors and checked it out that the band of thugs from the next village had gone to get you. We did, never expected to see you alive. And he said, no, he said, I didn't see anyone at all. And they said, no, uh, well, that's wonderful. They, they had no idea, you know, how he got through. And so one of them said, well, did you get the soldiers to accompany you? And he said, no, no, I didn't. I didn't have any soldiers with me. And of course he did. He had four soldiers with him, four little old ladies in a cottage in England who were on their knees, on their faces, praying God keep him safe. And God, in a miraculous way, manifested those four praying people to those brigands as soldiers. They thought there were four soldiers with them, and they let the man go. A windbreak. Four people, the other side of the world, a missionary on a lonely hill, coming along, protected through prayer. And you know, we do not do it enough. And we don't know now how to do it, perhaps, anymore. I, I'm getting an increased burden to do something about prayer and to start prayer adventure groups and basement prayer meetings and all sorts of things to get back to the work of prayer so that we could become a windbreak. I remember in many, many times when Stuart was on the road in difficult and dangerous places and I was staying at home, he would write back to me about an incident and I would directly link it with prayer time that our staff had had or our family had had or the children had had as Daddy went on his missionary journeys. I remember um, putting a map up when he'd go start on a three-month tour of ministry on our kitchen wall, and then I'd get all the kids going, and they'd be drawing donkeys. And I would tell them about Paul doing his missionary journeys on a donkey, but this time Daddy had an air donkey. It was, a, it was an airplane. And so they would be drawing these little air donkeys, you see. And, and then we would stick them on the map. Every time Stuart would move, we'd put the air donkey there, and then we'd have him here, and, and we would follow, and then we'd pray. And I would write and tell Stuart how we were praying about this, that, and the other. I think it was last Christmas I got a Christmas card from a husband and wife in quite dangerous Bible ministry, taking Bible into countries where... Bible shouldn't be taken. There's so many countries like that. They're doing undercover work for God. And the husband wrote back in his Christmas card this to his wife. May the Lord keep watch between you and me while we're away from each other, helping together so far apart, long distances dividing, and loving words pass not our hearts between, nor know we each the many things betiding, nor on each other comforted may lean. But we may pray with strong and holy pleading and live that so our pleadings must prevail. And he who knoweth well what each is needing can guide us what to ask to help avail. And at the end, when safely home in glory, when prayers and needs have changed for wonders new, how sweet, how blessed, if we may read the story of how each helped to pray the other through. Isn't that wonderful? Windbreaks. We can do it for our husbands. We can do it for our children. We can pray. We can be a windbreak for each other. One other story on this. 
when Stuart had been away all those years and then we came to America, he wanted to show the children why he'd been away all those years from them. And so as each graduated, he organized a missionary trip and took each of the children one by one on, around the world. It sounds very glamorous. It wasn't very glamorous. It was tough. He took Judy specifically to Bangladesh and China had just opened. He took her into China. She was one of the first in after the war came down, which was very exciting. India, she never has wanted to go back to India, I assure you. She got very, very sick in Bangladesh in the middle of the boondocks. Stuart was visiting two of our missionaries who were uh, translating the Bible and working with Muslim people. And right in the middle of these jungle villages, Judy picked up something and there was no water, there was no aspirin. Her temperature just went off the roof. She was with a doctor, actually, but a doctor who had no medicine out there in the middle of the country. I was at home, and usually my antennae are up. I, if I was not a believer, I'd probably be into all sorts of ESP and all of that. I just know I'm one of those people. My mother had all those senses to know what was wrong, and it was weird. And usually that's how I live my life. I, I pick up the phone and say, something's wrong here, and I'm right. But I was totally oblivious. There was absolutely no sense that anything was wrong. Here was my daughter and my husband stuck in this incredibly dangerous situation. And the doctor said to Stuart, we've got to get her out. We've got to get her out of the jungle. We've got to get a truck. And they got on the radio and they got a truck in. And she was half unconscious for half a day's ride in that truck out of those jungle situations to the airport where she was absolutely out of it onto this incredible situation on Bombay Airport into India. They had to get out of Bangladesh and they were going to India. Of course, the planes are not only delayed, they're canceled for days on end. Nobody tells you anything about it. And so for a day on Bombay Airport, she was just sick. Couldn't get any medicine, couldn't get any help. Somebody had come up to me at the missions conference the year before this happened, a missionary that I didn't hardly know. And in those days, we had pictures of everybody on the board and we'd take a picture and pray for that family. And this lady missionary said to me, I want your picture of your children. Give me one of the children to pray for. She said, you do it for us. I just, I want to pray. And so I'd given her Judy's pictures a year previous. And somewhere in Africa where she was, she was awakened in the middle of the night with an insistent sense, pray for Judy Briscoe. She had no idea what was going on or anything. She got out of bed and she said she couldn't, she tried to get back into bed and no, you stay there, you pray. And she prayed all night. She became a windbreak for my daughter. And it was, I don't know, six months later she wrote to me and said, I had the most strange experience, let me tell you about it. And she told me about this incident. And of course I matched the dates and the times and they were absolutely to the day of what was happening in my daughter's life. Now, if I could just excite you, if the king is king in your life, can you not imagine the thrill, the spiritual excitement of becoming a windbreak for someone? Would you dare to become that person? What a blessing. When the king is king, you will want to be a windbreak in other people's lives. Secondly, you will want to be a watershed. Now, it says that when the king is king, each man will be like a windbreak, like a watershed, like streams of water in the desert. Now, Jesus is the water. We are the watershed. 
What's a watershed? It's a ridge off which water flows. And you get a high piece of ground and a lot of water falling on it, and so you build this ridge, don't you, and divert the water. And you see a lot of this in Israel. So this would make a lot of sense to the people that the prophet was writing to. When the rain, which is very precious, and the water falls, then we have to divert it to the crops this way, and we have to divert it to the village that way. We have to divert it to the driest places, to the places where water is needed. And Jesus, of course, always was talking about himself as, I am in you a well, out of you rivers. That's he, this spoke here of the Spirit. Water is a picture, a symbol of the Holy Spirit in scriptures. And of course, Jesus is the water. In John chapter 4, he talked to a woman sitting on a well, didn't he? And he said, what you need is the life of the Spirit of God in you. And it will be like a well springing up into eternal life. He was talking about himself when he had gone back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus Christ can be like in us. As he reigns and rules in our life as King and Lord, he will enable the Holy Spirit to fill our lives and flow out. Where is it going to flow? Hopefully to people that really need the water, the water of the word. How do we get the word of God? How do we get the life of Christ into people's lives where they really need it? Well, first of all, you have to let the water flow over you. You have to be washed with that water yourself. You have to be able to be soaked in the scriptures. And you say, well, Jill, how can I do that? How can I ever get quiet? How can I ever do it? I don't know the answer to that, but you need to do it. You need to make a way. Actually, you can do anything you want to do. You can spend your time doing anything you want to do. Be honest. You do what you want to do. And maybe it's the art of leaving something undone so the thing that should be done is done. I don't know. Maybe it's saying, I'm going to stop doing this. I was at a group of, of couples with Stuart in our couples retreat. They were leaders. And they were talking about the problems that they have in their lives with what they do in their extracurricular time. And I noticed something very interesting as we went around the group and they talked about their family involvement. One of them said, well, we're a hockey family. And another said, well, we're a soccer family. And, and, and another said, well, you know, we're a gymnastics family. <laughs> they, they were identifying themselves by a sport. And yet I knew those young couples, and I knew that they were all Jesus families. But what was happening, and they were talking about this, was the fact that, that this sport had become the controlling element in their lives. So if they wanted to do something, they couldn't because somebody had to be here and there and, and now Sunday playing, you know, this whole thing, and what about Sunday school? And, and all these priorities are fighting for people's time. I really feel for you young moms that, that are soccer moms and hockey moms and all of that. I, I didn't have that. I, I don't know what happened, but there was YMCA camp and church camp two weeks out of a, a long summer, and then, then that was it. I don't know where all this happened, but it did, and of course there's decisions to be made. Where are those decisions made? If he is king, he makes them. If you are king, you make them. But there has to be time for immersion in the Word of God. Immersion in the Word of God. And you can do it 
all day. Just leave a Bible open in the traffic pattern of your house, in the place everybody dumps. Has, have you got one of those places? No, you don't have one of those places. But everybody has a place in a house where you come in the door and everybody dumps. I'm forever trying to create places where things should be dumped and keep that particular precious piece empty, you know, that, that I need to do all this, but it, it doesn't work. And for us, it's the kitchen block in the, in the, in the middle, which I need clear, which it just, it, I've given up. <laughs> and so in the middle of everything else that's dumped, there is an open Bible on that traffic pattern, underneath everything else sometimes. But it's there. I saw Ruth Graham model this for me in her beautiful home, high up in the mountains. And she said, Jill, she said, many a times a day I'll hear something on the radio or something will come into my mind or I'll have a conversation on the phone. I'll go past that traffic pattern. I'll pick up the pencil. I'll capture it just in a thought. I don't write a book. I don't write a sentence about it. Just capture it. And then she said, when I get together with the Lord in the evening or in the morning, I take that little book. And sometimes there's, there's little notes, just, just little captures so that I won't forget. And I just fill it in a little bit and write a sentence about it or find the scripture or turn to a hymn or, and I fill it out a little bit. And that way she is continually letting the water flow over her. And when you're a busy mom and you've got a lot of children, those are the things you're going to have to do. If you wait until they all leave home, <laughs> and that's what some of us are doing. Let me tell you something. When they all leave home, it is amazing what has takes their place. You think you'll have all this time. But if you haven't disciplined yourself to let the water flow over you on the run, renew on the run, then you're not going to start it when the children leave home. And so somehow the water has to flow over you so that you can divert it into the right direction. As you are immersed in the scriptures, as you go around your daily doings, somebody will come along and it'll just be the thing that you have absorbed that they will need. I remember sitting on a plane writing a Bible study on the man in the ditch. I, I had this assignment that I had to do before I got off the plane for my publisher and I was behindhand. And so I spread all my books out and I got going and I was writing about, I was writing about the man on the donkey getting in the ditch getting off his evangelical donkey and getting in the ditch and getting his hands around the problem and all of this. And, and I was really enjoying the way that this, this passage of scripture was flowing onto the paper. And the guy next to me started to show an interest and I was praying, keep him quiet, Lord, keep him quiet because I don't want to get, have a conversation about this. I, I've got to get this finished. I've got to write about this man in the ditch. And so I was letting the water flow over me and I was thoroughly enjoying it and being very convicted about my own life. And the young man next to me started to ask me questions. What are you doing? Are you a teacher? What, what, what is this? Is, you know, and and I, I would answer yes, no. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and oh Lord, you know, this is, this is awful. And now I've lost my concentration. <laughs> and suddenly it was just as if the Lord said, divert it, divert it. You silly girl, he is the man in the ditch. <laughs> and I turned and looked at him, and he didn't look like the man in the ditch. <laughs> Nicely dressed, and, you know, he looked fine to me. But I want to tell you something, he was the man in the ditch. He was very much the man in the ditch. And I suddenly closed my books and thought, 
how easy this is to do. You know, to write about it, to talk about it, think about it. But are we diverting what God is giving to us where it's needed, where it's really needed? And we can all fall into this category. And I was able to tell him that in the end. I said, let me tell you what I'm writing about. I'm writing about religious people running to church and running to Bible studies right past trouble, past somebody that's in need, that needs to know God. That's what I'm writing about. And through that conversation, as I explained what I was writing, he opened right up. And he didn't say, well, I'm the man in the ditch, but in his own way, he told me he had some needs. And I was able to start and try and address them. So here is the watershed. We are supposed to be like streams of water in the desert. We're supposed to have our antennae out. He doesn't look like the man in the ditch, but what's going on inside him? I love to sit on O'Hare and watch people. And when I watch them, I watch their busy faces and I watch... Airports are both sad places and great places. You know, you, you come out of an aeroplane and there's two things happening. There's people waiting to get on it and they're all in tears because they're saying goodbye. And then there are people who are waiting for the people on the aeroplane and they're all, oh, you know, and it's a wonderful and grab and yay and signs and ups and pom-poms and, you know, it, it's really incredible that two things happen every time I go anywhere. Just this incredible celebration and this incredible sadness of, leavings and goings and comings and all of that. And I love to sit waiting to get on my plane and watch people. And what I've learned to do is to be a windbreak and also to be a watershed in those situations. To look at people and think, I wonder if anybody has ever prayed for that person sitting opposite me in this seat, eating their McDonald's french fries, looking impatient. Has anybody ever prayed for their soul? And I think about that verse in the scripture, no one cared for myself. And so I say to God, I'll care. Give me a prayer to pray for them. You know who they are. You know everything about them. You made them. You've sustained them. You know whether they're married. You know whether they're divorced. You know whether they're sick. You know whether they're well. Let me be perhaps the first person that ever prays for the salvation of their soul. Let me be a windbreak. And then, of course, I'm praying all the time. Let me be a watershed. Is there someone that I sit down to casually? There's one seat here and there's three seats there. I have this incredible excitement. Lord, I think I'm going to sit over there. Direct me to the right place. Put the right person in the seat next to me. And it transforms sitting on O'Hare for five or six hours if the plane's delayed. It really does. It's very exciting. Because everywhere you go, there are people that need the streams of living water. And everywhere you go, there are people that need you to be a windbreak and a watershed. So we've got to get the message out. And lastly, are we like the shadow of a mighty rock in a thirsty land? You know, one of my favorite hymns is Beneath the Cross of Jesus. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. A home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burning of the noontime heat and the burden of the day. Now, Jesus is the rock. You can go home and take a concordance and look up the word rock, and you will see that in the Old Testament, 
And in the New Testament, the picture of Christ as the rock is there. In fact, in Corinthians, it says that he was the rock that followed them (laughs) through the wilderness. That's a wonderful picture, this rock with little feet, you know, (laughs) following the people, with this mighty rock following them, a rock that's walking. It's a marvelous picture because it speaks of stability. It speaks of strength, doesn't it, within a weary land. How often in the wilderness might they have seen in the distance after sand and dunes and heat and blinding light for day after day, the shadow of a mighty rock, because a rock meant water and a rock meant oasis and a rock meant shelter from this blinding, terrible heat. We don't know too much about that. When it gets too hot for us, we go inside and we turn the air conditioning on. But if you can imagine living in a desert, what it must be like, going through sand up to your knees. And if you've ever run on a beach that isn't firm, you know what it's like to run in sand that just exhausts you. And some people's lives are like that now. Now Jesus is the rock and we've got to be the watershed and tell them that and get that message out. We've got to be the windbreak and and be praying they'll come to realize that Jesus is the rock. And we cannot be the rock in one sense, but we can be the shadow of the mighty rock within a weary land. And I looked up in the dictionary the definition of a shadow. And do you know what it said? It said many things, but one thing I just gasped. I said, ah, wonderful. It says that a shadow is an inescapable companion. Isn't that beautiful? A shadow is an inescapable companion. And what you and I need to be in our life is to be the shadow of the mighty rock for people within the weary land, so that when people look at us, they cannot tell the difference. (laughs) How is that going to happen when we are an inescapable companion of Jesus Christ by his Spirit in our lives, moment by moment, day by day? This relationship invading everything we do, everything we say, when the king is king when we run our life under orders, when we realize we are not our own. We do not have choices. We do not have any choice if we are a believer. Any choices. Our choices must be submitted to the king. We are his. Lord, is this your will? Is this what you would like us to do for vacation? Is this what you want us to do with our money? Lord, is this what you want to direct our children to do for their career and for their life? Is this the school you would like our children to go to? Not I would like them to go to, but you would like them to go to. And as we become this inescapable companion, figuring out what God wants us to do with our lives and our children and our ministry and our world and our neighbors and our friends, then we become for them a shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. I said to Stuart, can you think of an illustration of this? Who has been like a mighty rock in our lives. He said, thinking of me specifically, what about the deacon that picked you up when you joined that church when you were first converted? Mr. Godden. And I said, yes, Mr. Godden. I had just been converted and I went back home and tried to find a church that would have me. (laughs) None of them were very keen on that. But I eventually found a group of people that were willing to take in this wild radical student who had just been converted to Christ. And it was a little Baptist church and one of the deacons was Mr. Godden. And Mrs. Godden was very sweet and very alive and very discerning 
and she was a windbreak and a watershed and a wall, and so was he. And she said to me one day, every day you teach, you teach around the school for me, don't you, Jill? And I said, yes. She said, on the way home, would you just stop by and have a little cup of tea and talk? And so this, this very little conservative little lady and this very wonderful Baptist deacon took this student that had just been converted and day after day after my teaching assignment, I would knock on the door and I would go into that house. And I came to such a thirst and hunger for that experience. And I would say to them, just let me sit here in the corner and just be here. Just let me be here. And the whole aura of that house was Jesus Christ. The king was king. In his life, her life, her three children, I watched how they treated each other as Christian husband and wife. I watched how they, they did their children. I watched how she ironed the clothes. I watched how she ironed them as if Jesus was going to wear them. I watched how she baked as if he was going to eat it. I watched these people, and they were for me the shadow of a mighty rock in a very, very difficult place in my life. As I was struggling with losing my family because of my faith, as I was struggling with certainly losing my friends because of my faith, as I was going through this deep, deep sand at that point. And then as they nurtured me, as they became for me what Christ wanted in my life at that time, I took off and began to witness to the kids I was teaching and that whole story of youth ministry began and I ended up with these 50 wild street kids who were found Christ and each day I'd go back, I couldn't wait to get there and, and say to Mrs. Godman, this is what happened and she would be hiding saying, oh yes, 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 it was wonderful, I can just see her now. She was so excited and she became my, uh, my windbreaker. Well, I pray for you because it's dangerous out there, Jill. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you know, she would, and I would know that she was my, my soldier. And that when I was out on the streets, which I was, in very, very dangerous situation, there was an unseen soldier that other people could see perhaps that I couldn't see because Mrs. Gordon was on her knees for me. And they became the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. And then, of course, the church didn't like me bringing all these people in. Actually, it disturbed things a little bit, and so they asked me to leave. And Mr. Gordon went to bat for me. And he went to the pastor, and he went to the elders, and he said... It's difficult. And he said, what's happening is shaking our little church to its foundations, but God is doing this. And God is using this young student. And you are not to touch this ministry. And I will take it on myself to be there and to nurture it and to help her with it. And he literally made a way that I didn't know till afterwards for me, or I would have been out of that church and goodness knows what would have happened to me. Here he was, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. You see, it doesn't have to be dramatic. It can be you and me helping someone else that needs st stability, needs to see some wisdom, needs to see some, some Christians that are solid and reliable. I have, every day people come up to me and say, shyly sometimes, I need an older woman to mentor me. People are apparently saying to me, there is a stability, there is the shadow of the mighty rock. You've done it, there's been there, you're stable. Your family's there. I want that. I want to be near it. And you can be that as you are growing, maturing Christ. It's not a matter of age. You can be as old as you like in Christ when you're young. Do that for other people. Be the shadow of a mighty rock because I tell you, the whole society is falling apart and they are looking. They're looking to you and they're looking to me.
to be those things. And when the king reigns, that's what happens. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for your book. Thank you for Isaiah. Thank you that here in a chapter that perhaps we haven't even looked at before, there are these wonderful, wonderful pictures. And we too can be, as Jesus is for us, a windbreak, a watershed, and a wall. So be it, Lord. Amen.